Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, beginning in the, uh, the 13th verse and extending to the end of the chapter. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And when he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business, And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out all the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Then the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and he did not need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man." The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Christ. Please be seated. We have been traveling through the Gospel of John, and we have worked our way up to a fairly famous event, the cleansing of the temple by our Lord, which is a little surprising that we are already here Because if we have been readers of the Synoptic Gospels, we would have found the cleansing of the temple in very clearly the last week of our Lord's earthly life before the crucifixion. Here, however, we are only in chapter 2. To get here, we have seen our Lord begin his earthly ministry. We have seen him begin to call disciples to himself, uh, it's very clear in chapter 1 that we are seeing very early events in our Lord's life. So why are we suddenly here at the cleansing of the temple? How does that work? What gives? It's an interesting question, and depending upon where you are as far as your level of belief or cynicism, you give different answers. When I was uh, studying for ministry, I had a professor who really uh, was very current in all the fairly unbelieving scholarship having to do with the Gospel of John, and uh, scholars debate, how do we end up at the cleansing the temple here in chapter 2? There are various theories, and the one that my professor liked to to, uh, elucidate on 
was there is a theory that John's gospel was originally written in loose sheaves and they weren't bound together. And at a very, very early stage in the gospel being presented, somebody dropped the sheaves and they put them all back together, but they slightly got it wrong and they put the cleansing of the temple very early in the gospel and that's how it came down to us. Now, there's no evidence of that, although I don't know where you'd find evidence of that, even if it happened. But if you believe that God has preserved his word, which believers do, that's obviously not very satisfying. But we do find it here. We find it very early in John's gospel. Uh, How does that work? Well, among evangelicals, there have been some other answers. John MacArthur, if you have his study Bible or if you have his, uh, uh, a couple of his works actually have his synopsis, uh, synopsis of the Gospels all put together. And in the way John MacArthur print, presents it, uh, there must have been two cleansings of the temples. Jesus must have done it very early in his ministry. About three years passes, he does it again. There are two cleansings. It's not impossible. Um, That satisfies the question of why does it show up so early. And in our Lord's ministry, there's very definitely a couple of places where very similar events happen multiple times. If you look at Matthew chapter 4 at the end through chapter 7, You have a a very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to Luke chapter 6, you get a similar sermon that covers similar territory, but is not the same sermon, that takes place specifically on a plane. And if you put the two of them together and you believe in the inerrancy of the word, um, it can't be the same sermon, but our Lord gave a very similar sermon in two different contexts. And that's not that surprising. Our Lord was a traveling preacher. I assure you, I have preached similar sermons in different contexts at different places. Uh, Ministers do that. I mean, I don't preach the same sermon in two different places because two different places need a different message. But I'll adapt my message depending upon what's going on. And that looks like what's going on with the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Maybe. Maybe our Lord, early in his ministry, entered the temple, drove out all the the money changers, overturned the tables, confronted the leaders, and then three years pass, and it happens again. I mean, after all, uh, our Lord God was sovereign in the death of Christ. Christ's crucifixion is not an accident. It's not like the leaders of Israel had the power to put him to death if God didn't will it. I mean, if you go to Luke chapter 4, for instance, and go to, chapter, uh, to verse 28, uh, we read this. Then all those in the synagogue, Jesus is back in his hometown, and he has made everybody in the synagogue really mad. Then all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath, 
and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. So this is a mob action. They want to kill our Lord. But the last verse of this section is, but passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, uh, it's very clear from this passage, a mob cannot just choose to kill our Lord. It has to be in our Lord's timing and plan. The cross is God's will. Uh, Our Lord is not going to die until his predestined time. Uh, So, two cleansings of the temple? Maybe. But I have to admit that I find it implausible. I didn't say I find it impossible, and MacArthur and other evangelicals could be right. I'm, I'm saying that. But I find it fairly implausible. The cleansing of the temple was a dramatic moment. It was a disruptive moment, like nobody's business, And it's fairly clear from the synoptics that what our Lord does in the temple is one of the great motivating factors to the Pharisees and Sadducees to bring their murder plot against our Lord to fruition. It was certainly a uh, destabilizing moment. And in the gospel we're looking at, in the gospel of John, Much later in that gospel, in chapter 11, uh, the high priest will say this about our Lord. It is chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. And this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now the high priest did prophesy, It was the Spirit of God giving him to say those words, but it's fairly unlikely that's what he was meaning to say. What he meant to say was, it is expedient for us that we kill this man so that the nation doesn't get removed by Rome. It was a prophecy from God, but he was meaning it for evil. And he was saying it because Jesus was destabilizing the region. They had worked out a very political... Uh, balancing act with the powers that be, and if you upset the apple cart, you're going to upset everything, so we got to kill this man. Well, that's nine chapters from where we are. Um, If Jesus did it once already, they already would have been talking that way, I would think. So I find it 
implausible uh, that there are two, and the, the text itself does not demand that we are reading things in chronological order. It is well known that while the Gospels are in broadly chronological order, they go from the beginning to the death to the resurrection, in all four of the Gospels, the various evangelists will write topically at various points. Uh, This looks like one of those points. Take, for instance, that in the last section of this passage, we're told, and when Christ is at the feast, many believe in him because they see the signs he's working, right? That's plural, and they see them. Well, we have just seen the first sign that our Lord does. He turns water into wine. We saw that last Lord's Day. And later from here, we're going to read about Christ's second sign. But when he is at the feast, he is doing signs, and it's the same word. So if it is chronological... It's hard to see that because you go from first to second, but in the middle you talk about signs happening. Also, this section begins with the word chi, which is translated and, or in the New King James here, now. It's very much like the English word and. It doesn't have a time signature to it. Uh, John says... Jesus did his first miracle, his disciples began to believe on him, and when he was at the festival, this is what happened, he cleansed the temple. The same thing is true with the last section of the the chapter, and while he was at the festival, he did miracles and they believed on him. The word and does not necessarily imply a time connection. So it is likely in my mind... Again, if, if on Judgment Day when I see John MacArthur and it turns out I'm wrong, I will apologize to John, and he was right. But it strikes me that this is topical. John has had a reason for putting the, the cleansing of the temple here topically. He is wanting us to look at a theme in these three things that all fit together. If you say that, though, you kind of have to say what that topic is. Well, I find that topic back in the first uh, historical account in chapter 2 rooted in those Jewish water pots. Last Lord's Day, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. And in the passage we looked at there, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we read these words. And there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And as you know, This is the water that Jesus will, of his own will, working a miraculous sign, change into wine. Well, John makes sure to tell us the reason why these very large water pots are sitting around in a Jewish home is not because of any utilitarian purpose. It's religious. 
There are many washings that Jews perform with this water. These pots can hold up to 30 gallons of water. And it is basically religious washing that they do. What kind of washings do they do? Well, if you go to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 7, uh, we read this last time, and it wasn't particularly positive. Beginning in verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 7, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, and when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which have been received, which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. These washings you will not find in Moses' law. Now, there are washings there, but not these. John, Mark specifically tells us these are according to the traditions of the elders. These are rabbinical. These are things that have grown in time. They are attached to Jewish practice, but they are not biblical. Um, that's what those water pots are for. So, uh, how are we to think about those washings? Well, staying in Mark's gospel, uh, it doesn't sound like it's real positive. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, see that phrase again there, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus answers, we read, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men." the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. So, would you consider that positive or negative? I think it's very obvious our Lord is condemning it. Now, he is not necessarily condemning tradition across the board. He is not saying that tradition itself, by itself, is necessarily evil. But this is a pretty heavy condemnation of tradition, this tradition has led uh, the visible church, the people of Israel, to lay aside the word of God and keep the tradition. And just so you don't miss that that's what he's talking about, Jesus goes on and very clearly says, and he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, 
Whatever you might be profited by me is korban, that is a gift, he shall be free. And you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, what are those water pots? They're basically human tradition. And human tradition always begins to compete with the Word of God. It always begins to get in the way of the Word of God. It becomes a competitor for human hearts. You, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Why does that happen, says Isaiah, quoted by Mark? You teach us human tradition the things of God. That's why your hearts are far from me, and that's why you set aside the Word of God. So, this is not a good thing, these water pots. Jesus turns the water, the powerless water in them to wine. He takes hold of it, but he totally changes it by his own will. The water pots are actually kind of a condemnation on the visible church. Well, having said that, what's happening at the temple? Well, you've got people in the outer court, which is called the court of the Gentiles. They are selling things. What are they selling? Well, they're selling lambs and oxen and doves, all the things that if you're in our midweek Bible study on Leviticus, you're pretty familiar with, they are selling those animals right there in that court so that you can take them in and perform your offering. Sounds positive, right? Well, in Moses' law, you're supposed to bring them with you when you come to the temple There's nothing in God's word that says, buy them at the temple. But the merchants and the Sanhedrin would say, you you don't understand. We are in a modern age. We we are in uh, 30 AD. This is a modern, modern age. When when Moses wrote, uh, pilgrims could bring livestock with them, but we are much more urbanized now, and it is just... Very difficult to do that. And the city of Jerusalem is huge. Uh, We are more urbane and more complicated. So we have provided a human way for you to be able to do those offerings that God didn't say, uh, you come and buy them here. Oh, by the way, you buy them from us because we're the only ones allowed to sell in this court. And you buy them with the temple shekel, which is not exactly the coin of the realm. It's a special coin. You have to get them from us, and we set the exchange rate. Now, of course, we're very upstanding and honorable. And just because we have a monopoly on on the money that buys the offering, we would never consider overcharging the poor or... Uh, working this to our uh, advantage in any way. We wouldn't do that because, you know, we're religious people. And, and we're simply helping you do this. Um, we, we've altered God's word, but it's okay. It helps you. And it's in the court of the Gentiles, which God's word does say in a couple dusty little passages, 
that the outer court is supposed to be where people can come and pray. It's totally open. You can seek the Lord God of hosts in the outer court. You can even seek him there if you're a Gentile. So uh, even non-covenant people can come and seek the God of Israel. And there's not any room for that anymore because of the merchandise. I mean, that's just the way things work out. I mean, it's, it's a more modern age. You've got to cut some corners. So Gentiles actually can't come in the temple and pray, and the common person can't come in and pray, but that's not that important. I mean, you kind of got to adapt things over time. And we're making a killing here, but, you know, we're providing a religious service, and everything is running smooth as clockwork. What could be wrong with this? Well, apparently God in the flesh thinks a lot because he creates a whip and he drives everybody out with violence. He overturns the tables, he spills the money, he declares you have turned God's house into Walmart, basically, that's the living Bible version of it. Uh, You have made religion a money-grubbing thing, and you have done it of your own accord. God never said to do this, but you've done it, and you've been doing it for a while. How does that relate to those water pots? It is human tradition. It has gotten in the way of the word of God. It has kept the Gentiles from seeking God. It has kept the common person from seeking God. It is human invention. It is strange fire. It is as powerless and as godless as all those washings. It's the exact same thing, but it's happening at God's very temple. Jesus turns the water of human tradition into the wine of his first sign. Jesus takes the human tradition in the temple and kicks it out to restore the temple, which is to be a house of prayer for all people. This is the theme. John has said, you know, he turned that water into wine because God is offended by this watery religion. He is not going to stand by as humans profess to worship him and make a show of worshiping him, but really aren't. Do you believe that the merchants in the temple were giving their hearts to God. Do you believe that their hearts were very close to their Lord? Or do you believe that when they came into work each day, they may very well have spoken very pious things, but their hearts were very far from him? It's the same sort of thing. And if you look at the last story in this chapter, uh, there are people who... Well, let me read it again, because it is, it is worth hearing, because it's a little shocking. Uh, give me a moment to turn the page here. Now, when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. So that sounds very positive, right? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, 
and did not need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So what's being said there? Well, they clearly have some sort of belief because John says they do. And they are communicating this nature of belief to our Lord. And you would assume this is a very positive thing, but John says it's not. Our Lord knows what is in their hearts. They have brought a kind of belief to our Lord, something that can be called belief, but it's not what our Lord wants to see. And so they're saying, I'll be your disciple. I will commit to you. I will follow you. And Jesus has them at arm's length going, I don't think so. Because he knows what's in them, and what is in them is not the stuff of a proper disciple. How's that work? Because it was said that they believed. Well, consider a few other passages. Let's jump up to... Uh, John, to, to James chapter 2 and there uh, read verse 14 to 19 what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works that faith cannot save him can it if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and One of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Okay, faith and belief are synonymous. One's a noun, one's a verb. Uh, you believe that there is one God. You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. All the way through this passage in James, James is contrasting two different types of faith. Um, there is a fleshy faith that is a human attribute that we can generate of ourselves And it's no better than the demons have. And this is not the only passage that talks about it. If you go to Acts chapter 8, you see this at work. Beginning at verse 9 and going to verse 13 and then jumping a little further, we hear this. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the same city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip and as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So this is positive, right? This man has been a sorcerer. He has used magical powers to 
uh, coerce people, but now he believes, right? Well, jump up to verse 18 to 24. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that on whomever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Ouch. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. But now he was said to believe. But he has no part or portion in the gospel ministry. He needs to seek God lest God would forgive him because he is filled with bitterness. Is it belief the gift of God? It's a sovereign gift. It saves us to the uttermost. Absolutely. We read about that kind of faith if you go to Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, This faith is a gift from God. The faith you're seeing Simon have, the faith that's talked about in James, is very definitely a human work, and it won't save. But God-given faith will. One of the advantages of our confessional statement, and also of the 1689 confession, is there's kind of a step beyond the Westminster Confession in that it talks about two types of faith existing. You have human faith and you have divinely given faith, and they are not the same. These people who come to Jesus and believe in him, well, they have a faith, but it's really no better than the faith of demons, and Jesus knows that, and he keeps them at arm's distance because what's in man is not what he wants in this case. But would not human faith say to our Lord, at least visibly, I want to follow you, I want to worship you, I'm going to be pious, I'm going to have a religiosity. Would it not do that? Well, of course it would. That's the nature of the thing we're talking about. The problem, though, is it's from human impulse, it is from human power, it won't last, it's not the gift of God, it is human-generated, it's water. It's the stuff of the water pot. It's not God-given faith. Jesus doesn't bring these people on his disciples because it is human-generated and God doesn't want that. It is as hypocritical as the water pots. It is as hypocritical as what's going on in the temple. It turns out that God hates hypocritical religious playing 
about more than anything else. God is death on hypocrisy. He reserves his strongest condemnations from Genesis to Revelation for hypocrites, for play actors, for those who have taken the water of human worship and substituted that for the wine of God-given worship, for the power of God. And so in all three of these accounts, you've got that theme happening. God is rejecting the human. He only wishes to see what God himself has given. This is the regulatory principle. This is religion of the heart, not religion of formality. By the way, do you notice how in the passages that I'm I'm reading, those things are tied together? Those who oppose the concept of the regulatory principle say, well, you just want to get everything right. You want to get things right according to God's word, but the only reason why you want to be such such a stick in the mud, such a keeping of the line, is because you believe in formality and you don't give God your heart. Well, what did our Lord say in Mark? Seven, you have taken human traditions, you have substituted them for God's worship, and this has caused your heart to be far from him. See, these things are not antithetical, they are intertwined. And our Lord is showing us these things in these moments of his ministry, and John has pulled them together. And so he is topically showing us what God thinks about Human hypocrisy, human worship, uh, cold hearts, but uh, ceremonial religion. So what do we we make of all this? Well, uh, the first is we see how serious God takes it that he wants his worship to come from his commands and not human inventions. The regulatory principle is not something that is just kind of a reformed flavor It's very near and dear to God's heart. If you want to worship him with human tradition, you think you're honoring him, maybe, but God gets mad about it. God is offended by it. Ask Nadab and Abihu. He he will not take it. Number two, God does desire worship from the human heart and not according to pretty aesthetics. Human beings can be very creative in what they create in the temple courts. They can be really very professional in the worship services that they put together. They can be suave and sophisticated in their private devotions. But God is really not looking for any of that, although, you know, you want to bring your best to God. But what God is looking for is worship from the heart, from a converted heart, a heart where the Spirit dwells. That's what God is looking for. And No religious ceremony will substitute for that. Your hearts are far from me. What you're doing in the temple, it may be running really smoothly according to God Incorporated, but it's not from the heart. God wants the human heart. And number three, God sees and knows the difference. God sees and he knows. Christ knows what is in a man. 
He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's in them because he sees right to the very heart and core. You may be the most religious person in your town. You may know the ins and outs of your religion. You may know all of its ceremonies. You may be able to talk its lingo. You, you invest your time in religion. But God knows you. God sees right to the heart. And God hates nothing more than hypocrisy. You can lie to your minister. You can lie to your elders. You can even lie to yourself. You can't lie to God. He knows. He knows if what you are bringing him is the water of human tradition. He knows if you're bringing him a suave and sophisticated human tradition. He knows. And no matter how good you play act, God knows. And he will come in with his whip in his timing. He will not just let that sit. He will reform his temple. He will kick out the merchants. He will purify his church. This is something Christ is, quote, zealous for. His disciples watched him do it, and they remembered Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The psalmist says this is what a good person will do. He will be zealous for the house of God. He will want the reformation of the house of God. It will fill his heart. And if that's what will happen in the good person, what do you think will happen in the absolute perfect person, which is the Lord Christ? Jesus is zealous for the reform of his church. He is zealous for true worship. He is zealous for the heart of worshipers. It drives him. This is something that those who would be called by his name, Christian, should emulate. John, in his letter to the churches, in 1 John, in chapter 2 and verse 6, says this very simply, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It's sweeping. Jesus is put forward as the example of the perfect person. We are not saved by our works, but we are drawn to holiness in Christ. And if we say we are Christians, we will emulate him. Well, Jesus is zealous for the reform of his church. He is zealous to oppose hypocrisy. He is zealous to oppose cold religiosity. Go and do likewise. I cannot emphasize enough how much God hates hypocrisy. He can't stand it. It is odious to him. He, he, will, he will stop your business. He will stop this well-oiled machine you have running. He will kick it all to smash because he despises hypocrisy. And then finally, the last thing we should take from this chapter is that true religion is about the temple that is our Lord. It is not about washings. It is not even about the physical temple that, while being misused, was a type and a shadow. Uh, it's not about the personal commitment. 
It's about Jesus himself. When Jesus is asked to give a sign to these people, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They don't understand his phrase, but the disciples do and you do. You are told directly from this passage the temple is Jesus. Ultimately, non-hypocritical worship is all utterly centered in our Lord himself. He is the temple. He is where the sacrifice will be made. He is the sacrifice. Every type and shadow has pointed to him. Ultimately, any worship, any religiosity that does not embrace him as the temple will drown in play-acting, will drown in powerlessness, will drown in human tradition, because all real religion is about him. He is the temple. And John takes these three accounts and puts them together in a topical way so that we don't miss his message. May God grant that we take it to heart.